Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, and welcome back to New Books in Eastern European Studies. My name is Piotr Kosicki. I'm a professor of history at the University of Maryland in College Park. My guest today is Joshua Zimmerman. Uh, professor Zimmerman is the author of several books, including The Polish Underground and the Jews, 1939 to 1945, and has written for Politico and the Times of Israel. He is Eli and Diana's Borowski Chair in Holocaust Studies and East European Jewish History and Professor of History at Yeshiva University. Uh, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. We're here to talk about uh, Professor Zimmerman's uh, brand new book, major biography of Józef Piłsudski, uh, entitled Józef Piłsudski, Founding Father of Modern Poland, which is just out this month with Harvard University Press. And I'm going to start the conversation just by asking, uh, you, you, you bring up several times throughout the book that Piłsudski is, of course, a household name in Poland, even though many Poles, of course, don't really know that much about his life, but has really been rendered with the passage of time a virtual unknown outside of Poland. So given that, obviously, this is a major work in English, I'm curious, uh, what made you decide to take it on? And what do you think are the, the pieces that just to start off, uh, and someone who hasn't read the book really needs to know in terms of an English language reader approaching Piłsudski's life. Mm-hmm. So um, I uh, first encountered the subject of Piłsudski as an undergraduate at the University of California, Santa Cruz, uh, when I took um, a seminar on the Russian Revolution from Professor Peter Kenez. Uh, who's now emeritus professor there. He was a specialist on Russian history. And I decided uh, in the course of the seminar to do a paper on the Polish-Soviet War of 1920. So that was my first kind of engagement uh, with the subject of Pilsudski. I wrote the paper and it be, and then put it into a kind of a seminar work uh, for the major, which was required there. And, um, you know, you know, one thing is that 
is that I remember having a fairly uh, positive evaluation of Pilsudski uh, in that uh, seminar paper talking about um, how he wanted to what, as he said, push reactionary Russia back as far as possible so as to make life for uh, uh, the nations between ethnic Poland and ethnic Russia to be free and to be able to express um, uh, their ambitions and desires uh, for for sovereignty, like Ukraine, uh, for example. And then I remember um, that there was a little bit of pushback on that, uh, essentially, um, in the seminar, uh, saying that, in fact, uh, Pilsudski was rather an aggressive uh, military leader um, who um, who provoked um, Russia and and um, acted in some ways uh, uh, recklessly, uh, and that the the people who wanted peace were the Russians. So I just remember that that kind of interest and that kind of controversy, the tension between what was being being advocated by Pilsudski and then some of the people in the seminar uh, saying that it was a kind of imperialist venture. So that to, to go out a kind of Polish imperialist venture, it wasn't really for the freedom of Ukraine and Belarus, but it was for uh, to reestablish the frontiers of 1772 and have Polish domination. So I do um, remember that tension between what Pilsudski was saying uh, and what people were um, alleging. So that was my first kind of encounter with Pilsudski. In the course of, of that seminar paper and, and researching, I realized how little there was in English. Um, that was, uh, I graduated in 1990, and that was, uh, I remember, 1988, 1989. And at that time, really the only book in English was one by Václav Jędrzejewicz uh, uh, from 1981 in English. Um, and um, so I used that, and then it happened to be that Pilsudski's um, very well-known in Poland book on the 1920 war, Rok, um, you know, uh, which came out in 1924, was translated into English. So I remember that our library didn't have it, but we got it, I got it on interlibrary loan, and I remember uh, turning those pages slowly because I was so interested in in every word. I was kind of fascinated by the, this whole production of a translation and the introduction by the um, translator and then by the editor, Jan Jajewicz, and the importance. And it felt like I was being given access to this work that I would not normally um, at all be able to read. I didn't know Polish um, at the time. So that was my, my first interest. Then I um, decided to partly because of that project, for other reasons, interested in the Holocaust in Poland, I decided to take a gap year between undergraduate and uh, graduate school. And so I spent uh, a one-year Polish language and culture program in, in Krakow in the 1990-1991 academic year, because I decided I wanted to learn the language. I didn't know the language. Um, and, uh, and so that was an immersion program at the Jagiellonian University, in which you lived in Dom Pios, which is like the actual real uh, dorm for Polish um, students. So you got to, to actually interact with Polish students, and then every day you're learning Polish uh, language, but then also Polish culture and geography and history. So it was a cr critical time also just to be in Poland, 1990, 1991 academic year. So it was really an extraordinary experience to see Poland right after the fall of communism. Uh, I was 
there for the first uh, post-communist presidential election where um, where Goenza, you know, uh, competed with uh, Tadeusz Mazowiecki uh, in a runoff election, very kind of intense, controversial you know, campaigns and uh, looking to the future of democratic Poland. Um, and I, you know, also observed in that presidential election that suddenly the figure of Pilsudski was present. And I was trying to trying to kind of uh, kind of process this, um, you know, why why was the image of Pilsudski important? Because both of them were claiming to be inheritors of the tradition of, of Pilsudski. And I and I started realizing that in Solidarność, the Solidarity Movement, that Pilsudski emerged as this potent symbol of Polish sovereignty and freedom during the communist period. Uh, and, and that he had actually, as I learned only by being in Poland at the time, that, that his image had been suppressed under communism. And I was fascinated with that. And again, you know, all these factors going in being from, uh, you know, California and uh, uh, being a third generation American and um, and trying to understand uh, how it is that essentially the founding father of modern Poland, he's the first head of state and is somehow suppressed. Uh, and then I started reading and realizing that it was only November 11th, 1981, that the communist government allowed any public celebration of Independence Day, but without Pilsudski. It was a very trick is a very tricky thing for the for the communists to do. We're celebrating independence, which they hadn't been able to do for 40 years, but we're not going to acknowledge Pilsudski. You know, it would be like us having Independence Day and being told George Washington, his image and his name is banned. You know, it wouldn't really make sense to us. So I was fascinated with that, that tension there. Now Poland is free and this figure is coming up uh, and he's part of the somehow, um, you know, 50 years after his um, death, he's, his image is emerging in the post-communist election. So the figure was of for sure very important to me. Um, I think um, a lot of listeners will know that, that uh, the huge square in Warsaw in 1990 was renamed Pilsudski Square. Uh, in 1990, so that was one of the first kind of acts of the post uh, of the post-communist um, uh, government to start acknowledging in a free and uh, democratic Poland uh, the the leaders uh, who built the the democratic state and the sovereign state in in 1918, 1920, Pilsudski being um, at the center. So this figure became important. Now I only want to say if if we go kind of back to say that I returned to the United States and I start at UCLA uh, in the PhD program in history. And there I could study with Ivan Berend, who was a professor uh, of history from Hungary, who taught East European history there. I was very excited that there was a, um, a program where you could study East European history. Um, there wasn't a, a Polonist there per se, but someone who was intimately uh, knowledgeable about all the countries. Uh, and so I started taking up more and more um, the study of Poland and realized that uh, Pilsudski was very little known. And I found that um, interesting that among Polish Americans and in Poland, he was a central figure and he was venerated, 
But in, in the U.S., I would say enunciate the name Pilsudski and people would say, you know, it was clear people didn't know who I was speaking in general, right? Uh, and so I started um, feeling that uh, in some ways, uh, I hoped eventually, this was in, you know, the early 1990s, that I could put out eventually a work in English, uh, a, schol- a major scholarly biography in English to kind of restore his memory in the English-speaking world and make an argument for why he was a critical um, figure uh, between the two world wars. And so that's one of my hopes about this book, that his memory can be restored, uh, not just because he was a great leader, but because he was a, a an original thinker uh, whose vision of the organization of European states largely coincides with the present day uh, uh, conflict uh, in Ukraine. Um, and, and so we can get into this, but one of the major um, points I make in the book is that Pilsudski as head of state and commander in chief of independent Poland was the only statesman after World War I to explicitly champion the independence of Ukraine. And not only in words, but in deeds, he actually committed the troops to uh, try to actually bring about the independence of Ukraine in 1920, something that failed, but but the but uh, it, it, it has like a, a reverberates today, this idea, because when he made that uh, attempt and he was hotly criticized by the British, by the French, who said he was he was um, he was reckless and he was provoking Russia uh, and we don't want to provoke Russia. And he turned to the West and sternly said that without an independent Ukraine, Poland and Europe will never be secure. And that West Europeans, he said, they just don't understand. This is what he said. The the and I'm just quoting from him, the annexationist nature of Russian political life and the Russian uh, kind of po- uh, political entity, and that um, that it has to be uh, curbed through, in his view, through force. It can't be through diplomacy. They have to be pushed back to a line, and there has and has to be fortified. This is his view to defend the West against um, Russia. So uh, thank you so much. I, 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 you, you interview, you, you overviewed a lot of different elements of the book, and I just wanted to say for our listeners that it is a marvelous book, which I think is going to do exactly what you just described in terms of your goals of restoring Piłsudski's place uh, in the English language uh, public sphere. He was a household name in some sense during the time period, uh, the, the, the latter time period of his life uh, in Western Europe and, and even in American politics. But also, I think you're going to do a, your book's going to do a great service in terms of bringing certain facts to bear to the Polish language reader. And uh, we'll talk a little bit later. I want to talk much more about Ukraine as well, but about the reception that you hope or maybe hope that the book will have in Poland. I want to take a minute and focus on this question of Russia uh, in uh, sort of the long historical terms, because one of the main reasons perhaps that 
Piłsudski has been neglected is his complexity. And it's very easy to talk about him selectively, right? So everybody can appropriate their own version of Piłsudski in Poland today. Uh, the anti-Semites can ignore his defense of Jews. <laughs> the, uh, the liberals can ignore uh, whatever kind of, um, well, militaristic tendencies or even imperialistic tendencies. We could talk about what language we want to use to talk about him, but his influences were pretty ecumenical too. Uh, you take someone who read Mickiewicz, read uh, Napoleon, read Zygmunt Krasinski, read Marx. Uh, obviously, uh, that doesn't necessarily spell coherence. So what I wanted to, to ask you now is it, if you feel the point that you just made about how Russia and the need to counter it were misunderstood. Is that kind of the thread that ties together the different influences, at least on the young Piłsudski, if not you know the, the older Piłsudski? Or um, is there more to it than that? Because obviously he was a socialist revolutionary. He was a nationalist revolutionary. He was a military man. He was a head of state. And we see Russia and specifically an anti-Russian approach in each phase there. Mm, was he just kind of grasping at whatever ideology he could or whatever sources he could get that would supply him, so to speak, with ammo against Russia? Or do you feel like there was real coherence there beyond uh, a stance against Russian imperialism and the Russian state? That's a wonderful question. So my feeling is that we're speaking about a man who, who um, in the first period of his life lived in Imperial Russia and came from, uh, from a, a gentry Polish family, landowning Polish family, um, uh, members of whom participated in the 1863 Polish um, insurrection and many of his family members, such as his father, were actually part of the insurrection. And he had uncles, uh, a grandmother, aunts, uh, who um, had been directly um, victimized by the Russians. Some cousins uh, were sent, like many Poles, into exile and never returned, uh, for example. Um, so uh, so there, there is that definite like national legacy uh, um, uh, a sense of that Poland was wronged um, uh, by Russia and he wanted to redress that wrong and work as the leader of the people um, to restore Poland but he combined what we may call that insurrectionary tradition with a social democratic ideology so it wasn't just about restoring sovereignty to Poland but having a just, political system with fairness, with a rule of law, um, um, civil rights for all, minority um, rights and tolerance. So so there was an internal struggle um, between him and and uh, conservative elements um, of, of Polish society for the type of Poland that would emerge. And, and certainly as a young, if, we know that around 16, 17, um, he was uh, at the Russian State Gymnasium in Vilna, uh, one of the many Polish students in this in this Russian um, high school, and he was in an illegal kind of study group, and he became a socialist. So they read 
uh, as you said, Marx, um, but they read also other works um, of, of socialism and social democracy. Uh, so they understood how to build a, a kind of social democratic or a democratic um, society. Then also began reading Polish uh, uh, studies that were actually published abroad and illegally in, um, uh, smuggled into Poland about the insurrection. Then there was um, around that time, we're speaking about late 1880s in Vilna, um, a few work, a few Polish works on social democracy had just come out as well. So they're reading a kind of Polish version because because at one point Piłsudski will kind of intermix with ethnic Russians who are also socialists, but he he's not thrilled at all with the literature in Russian, and he's deeply suspicious um, about the Russian imperial idea. Now. Um, um, so I think one was just the, um, um, a, how do you say, you know, social justice for, uh, the peoples of the lands, but also, um, you know, the struggle for sovereignty. So there were definitely two things. And we can say that Poland, that Pilsudski not only founded, uh, the, the reborn Polish state in November, 1918, but he, he really led the transition to democratic uh, state, society, and institutions. And we can really see that as he uh, sat in almost absolute power uh, in November 1918 as head of state commander-in-chief um, with, with really all power in his hands. His, he, he could have gone in any direction, but what he did was precisely to build democratic institutions in an entirely transparent manner, um, really without it, kind of an unbending um, uh, drive to to create that free democratic Poland. And I think that that was a, an important part of it. So he's he's, he's helped carve a, a Polish state out of the fall of the empires, but he's very clear that he wants a democratic Poland at this point, 1918 to 1921. And I think that's I think that's the most important legacy, not that he built and fought for the democrat uh, for the sovereign state but that it be a tolerant uh rule-based you know uh rule-based uh legal state that protected uh minorities uh, and really all civil rights and he had and he had a lot of battles with that yeah, it's uh, I, it's it's a really vivid picture. I think that you paint. I mean, you both in the book and in what you've been saying. I, I'm thinking also about the point you made in your uh, in the first minutes of our conversation. The analogy with George Washington, and, and it's something that I think also comes up in the final pages of the book, if I remember right, from a Polish American eulogy following Piłsudski's death. And I've been thinking about that. I think that's a very helpful framing, and I'm definitely going to use it when I'm teaching. But of course, George Washington uh, didn't, or I mean, I guess you could you could make the case that Quebec was to the north, and <laughs> there were there were various possibilities, maybe in terms of uh, how he understood uh, the emerging national identity of the various colonies becoming states. But the fact of the matter is that there was a longer arc, which you. Uh, 
alluded to already at some length, the legacy of 1863 and before it, the long history of the partitions of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. I admit, you know, it's been almost 20 years since I first read Timothy Snyder's Reconstruction of Nations and trying to, it, it, it's impossible for me to think about Piłsudski without implotting him in these entangled stories of nationalities. Sometimes, I mean, use the phrase borderland nationalities uh, at various points in the book. And sometimes really there, it's impossible to uh, disentangle from one another, the Ukrainian, the Polish, the Jewish, the uh, Belarusian, if we can sort of figure out where to implot uh, Belarus chronologically and the Lithuanian. And in that sense, you know, obviously in Snyder's book, he comes up alongside Mitskevich, and he was very conscious of that. But I'm curious, given that distinctiveness of Piłsudski as someone who literally was trying to square a bunch of different national identities, recognizing to some extent that they're distinct and discrete, but not actually wanting to separate them, uh, how far this um, identity of a founding father of modern Poland goes. And I mean, it's an old question if we talk about, you know, liminal figures like Mickiewicz or later on like Czesław Miłosz, uh, how Polish, quote unquote, were they? But I find it's a, it's a useful question. It's one that I was wondering about a lot reading your book because anti-Russianness did bind, for in his mind, the different nationalities together. Uh, de-Russification, I think, is another word you use, which I found really helpful. But, um, uh, you know, you think of the, the founder of a modern nation state, how can the founder of a modern nation state, whether Washington or Piłsudski, really want to bring a lot of different nationalities together uh, while juggling this kind of impossible balancing act? Uh-huh. That is a, a great question because it kind of leads us into this, this um, a subject of the legacy of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth that collapses at the end of the 18th century. And really, this is his starting point. It's kind of what we may call the Jagiellonian ideal. That comes up in a couple of works on the history of Poland. And the, the Jagiellonian ideal is this notion that there was a very, very large nation state lying in the center of Europe between Russia uh, and the German lands in, in which it was a kind of commonwealth of three nations, Poland, Ukraine, and Lithuania. And that only with the union of these, of these territories into a single political entity could you have a viable state with defensible borders. Uh, and there was this, this, um, uh, there was this sense that Pilsudski wanted to recreate in some ways, obviously not the 18th century Commonwealth, but some structure that would have defensible borders and would have a, a, a common political system of, and, and we have to remember this was a multinational, uh, multilingual, multi-religious Commonwealth in which ethnic Poles made up less than half the population in around 1750. Um, I remember reading a work which said that ethnic Poles probably made up about 44% of the Commonwealth in 1750. So um, who were these others? You know, um, you know, it was 8% Jewish and there was a lot of, 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 or, of Eastern Orthodox and, and um, Protestants, uh, Catholics, you know, there were some Muslims uh, and that heritage is 
um, is really something that Piłsudski uh, embraced as someone who was born and raised in what is today Lithuania, and that he was a, a Lithuanian Pole in that sense, that he was, of course, Polish, but he descended from Lithuanian lands. And from a land which, uh, in which he spent from age um, seven uh, until, until uh, he graduated high school, so seven to 17, he grew up in, in Vilnius, right? Which was a place uh, in which no single ethno-linguistic group uh, constituted a majority. So it, it, it is, it is uh, uh, one of the most multinational, multi-ethnic, um, uh, let's say, regional capitals you can have. So, so he grew up where Poles actually were not, uh, Poles made up 30% of Vilnius, and the largest single population were Jews who made up 40%, but nobody made it a, 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 a constituted a majority. So his whole upbringing was that multinational, multicultural cities, and that culture was something that you could embrace uh, and not to impose one culture over the other, even if the Polish heritage was acknowledged that, that uh, you know, that the university, there was a Polish university and established um, as a Polish university, that Polish language and culture was, was, was dominant uh, and important. But the idea of, of um, I don't think he would have used the word tolerant, just that, that you embrace diversity uh, and you're not trying to impose one language or one culture over another. So that was one. One is the, that cultural aspect of, of, a, of kind of uh, a tolerant, pluralistic uh, commonwealth. And the other is the political idea that you could, that these, the heritage of, the, of these lands was not Russian. And he wanted to restore that heritage. Uh, uh, and he, he makes that attempt. He fails. It's what, it's probably his greatest regret um, was probably two, which was one, the the failure to bring about an independent Ukraine, which he more than any other leader tried to do. And the other was a union with Lithuania. So this problem with Lithuania persisted uh, in which he hoped he could he could bring about a kind of union, restore the Jagiellonian ideal with some kind of union between Lithuania and Poland. And, and uh, by 1918, 1919, the Lithuanians wanted complete sovereignty, not, not in a larger entity. And uh, he, could not, uh, he could not convince, convince them of that. But I think that that was an important part of his thinking. I, I think too. I, I wonder if maybe for the non-specialist reader, I'm going to test drive this with my students in the fall when I use parts of your book for the first time. But it, it may seem a little bit counterintuitive to think of a backward-looking political activist as being a revolutionary, opposed to conservatives who wanted to dig in and partner with the imperial oppressor. Right. And obviously, you, you, you mentioned a couple of times already, he had a social democratic ideology. The, the one time really Marx figures prominently in your discussions of his socialism is for Marx having advocated Polish independence, which I, 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 I always love the, the combination there as well. But the curious thing for me is, of course, if you're looking back to the 18th century and to restoring that sort of Jagiellonian element or the unity, the element in the room is 
the enormous population of peasantry where there is still this question, even if we set aside national identity for a second, the idea of trying to conceptualize a modern state that would recoup some of those elements of union, it's, it's fascinating to me. And I guess the question that I would pose to you is, do you feel like he had a clear concept uh, before World War I of how such a state might look? Or really he was driven by the larger goal and he felt like he could kind of, I mean, he wouldn't have used the phrasing, obviously it's anachronistic, but build the plane while flying it uh, once he actually got to that point? Uh, that's a wonderful question. Can I back up for a moment and just say for the listeners that I think it's important to know that that in my view, Piłsudski was not anti-Russian. I believe that he's perceived that way or he's characterized that way. He was anti-imperialist and anti-communist. And so he made a very specific case, for example, in 1919, a Russian uh, uh, political uh, exile um, spoke with him in Warsaw, um, a Russian writer, and came out with an extraordinarily positive, um, it was kind of a short biography, short um, description of Pilsudski. But one of the things um, he lays out is that he asked uh, Pilsudski about his view of Russia. And what Pilsudski said is that I'm still searching for what he called the third way. He says, I'm against Tsarist Russia and I'm against Bolshevik Russia. And he's like, and, and uh, he was so disheartened that the provisional government that uh, that took power after the fall of the Tsar in February 1917 fell to the Bolsheviks. That was the third Russia he was looking for, which was a liberal, progressive Russia, but it was gone. So he's saying, unfortunately, he can only see a Bolshevik Russia and then the and then the pro-monarchist, uh, you know, uh, inside Russia at the time, pro-monarchist, anti-Bolshevik. Not he says both of which he believed were bad for Europe and bad for Poland. So he supports neither. And for that, he was hotly criticized during the Russian Civil War for refusing the request of the Western democracies to team up with the white Russians to help defeat the Bolsheviks, right? During the Russian Civil War, the West, Western democracies support the white Russians. There's, uh, and, and we see those anti-Bolshevik uh, Entente forces, uh, even as late as 1920 in the north of Russia, waiting and um one of the russian white generals Denikin, in his auto in his um memoir hotly criticized pilsudski even going as far as to say that the bolsheviks would have fallen if pilsudski had backed the white army but what pilsudski said is is that would be uh that would be no improvement for europe or for poland uh if the white army succeeds in taking the bolsheviks and as he said i'm i'm anti-Tsarist and anti-Bolshevik. I'm, I'm not standing with either. He refused. You give me the third Russia and he will back them. And that was democratic Russia, which had, which had an eight month history and had collapsed. Uh, and so he wasn't, he was against the imperialist Russia and against Bolshevik Russian culture. Uh, but he wasn't against Russian language, culture. Obviously he was a Russian speaker himself because he went through Russian schools. Um, but there was no inherent antipathy to Russians, um, even though his family and his people had been so wronged by the imperialist Russian state. But he understood there was that third Russia. He was just waiting for it. And it didn't arrive. 
So something I just wanted to, um, can you ask that question again? Uh, sure. So it, the nutshell version answer, is going I think to I be answer the one you had mentioned. How do we think of a backward-looking yeah. uh, political activist as a revolutionary, and specifically on the point of seeking social justice and uh, equal equal civic rights, when so much of the Jagiellonian ideal involved was driven, you know, by uh, a feudalism and a peasant economy, right? That's right. Oh, so uh, he wanted, uh, of course, not feudalism and a peasant economy. He wanted a modern state uh, based on the Jagiellonian ideal of tolerance and pluralism and uh, and a multicultural uh, uh, society. Uh, now, in that, he clearly, by the by the time uh, on the eve of World War One, uh, when we're speaking about, I believe he was uh, um, forty, you know, in his early forties at that point, uh, he had been well first uh, in reading about social democracy. He had spent time uh, uh, since 1902 in Austria-Hungary. He lived in um, Krakow. Uh, he, he, in a constitutional uh, parliamentary state where there was freedom of the press, uh, and he saw that, uh, and uh, freedom of association. Uh, so he lived in a kind of democratic parliamentary system, had spent time in England, and I believe what he wanted to do was to uh, to build democratic institutions uh, in preparation for a a, 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 Pol- a sovereign Polish state, and we should think about who his heroes were. So clearly, Napoleon is the figure that is at the center, uh, and I think that's important to bring out for the readers. So here is uh, you know um, a young man who is born in 1867. Uh, outside of Vilna, then from seven on, um, grows up in Vilnius and, uh, and is educated in this imperial Russian state. And he becomes a, uh, a socialist and wants to build um, a, a sovereign um, Poland uh, that is, you know, that is national in, in, in form, but, but socialist in, in content. By socialist, he was what I call a social democrat. He wasn't he wasn't a revolutionary socialist. He was more on the evolutionary side. So, um, and and you can see. I mean, I think what's important is to see when he was given absolute power in November 1918. Uh, everything is revealed by his decisions in the first three months of his rule, because because he did have absolute power when the state collapsed. It was literally handed to him. Uh, and there were fears that he would become a kind of um, dictator, uh, and there were questions to him about that because the uh, the media expressed that um, anxiety about you know here you have absolute power, um, you know can we be assured that you're going to keep your word that you are going to call for free and fair elections, you will respect those elections, you will allow that freely elected assembly to draft a constitution, you you will respect. And, and he responded very clearly and very, very directly to all, all those questions because he knew that the West European powers were a little bit weary of, of him, especially in those first uh, three months. And we can get into this with the readers of this phenomenon that for the first three months after World War I, the Western democracies actually recognized uh, a, an alternative 
representative body in Paris, it was called the Polish National Committee, as the government of Poland, it took them three months to actually extend formal recognition to Pilsudski's government in Warsaw. Um, and so that, you know, I think that's an interesting period to look at the diplomacy and how Pilsudski um, put forth ideas to, to try to address concerns of the, of the Western European powers, that he was a socialist or came from a social democratic background. Um, and most of his friends and colleagues were from that milieu. So that first provisional government was largely socialist. So there was some, um, some concern about that uh, and how he went about uh, sending, you know, uh, diplomatic missions to Paris and helping to, and ended up uh, uh, being instrumental in forming a coalition government in January, 1919. Uh, in order to finally receive recognition. And there, was a, there, were, there were a lot of elements to that recognition that were critical for, for Poland, because until the Western democracies extended the formal recognition, which would happen between January and early February 1919, uh, they were holding up aid to Poland. And Pilsudski uh, was sitting there in, in, in a moment that has current reverberations with the war in Ukraine, saying we need to defend our frontiers against the the Russians. They are they are on our borders. We don't have sufficient ammunition, arms, weapons, personnel. Uh, we we need um, aid from the West to def- to defend the frontiers against an encroaching Russian invasion. Uh, and so that's what's happening. So there's a lot happening in those in that first, but. Um, but I would be happy to go over those decisions that he made to uh, to craft uh, a, um, a democratic um, Poland at the time, as opposed to a- another kind of Poland, which which could have been authoritarian. But he was um, opposed to that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This is such a, an, an incredible window to, to, to think about. I, I actually have an excellent uh, undergrad student who just finished a thesis on where Wilson stood in some of the debates that you just referenced. So it's something I've been thinking about a lot, uh, specifically what continued onward, because a lot of the aid that Piłsudski, and I mean, I think the story that you were just highlighting, how Piłsudski sort of sucked up his pride and worked with the famous pianist Ignacy Paderewski to seal the deal and form a government that the Western allies would recognize. I, I, maybe I can, I can just sort of mm, ask you or sort of coax you into talking about two, two different things uh, related to this point. The first being, uh, in your book, you mentioned that Piłsudski wrote at the time that he – I mean, maybe it was in an interview actually that he gave that let Paderewski bow to whomever he needs to bow. I need money for the military. <laughs> and this is something I wanted to ask you about because you've been t- you talk a lot about democracy, and I think that's clear that Piłsudski did have ideologically democratic commitments, but basically 
from the narrative of your book, it emerges clearly to me that at least by the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905, if not earlier, Piłsudski switched gears and started thinking first and foremost about the nature of conflict and violence. And revolutionary, not in the sense of just sort of sacrificing, throwing lambs to the slaughter, like in 1830 or 1863, but a kind of structured strategic effort like he tried to do. And I mean, your book is an amazing narrative and account of this for his different attempts throughout the years of World War One. So I guess what I'm asking on that particular point is, as committed as he was to democracy, I came away from your book feeling like at the end of the day, he was more interested in defining the contours of the state by violent means. And that doesn't mean, you know, free for all. It means uh, kind of disciplined, structured military strategy, drawing a lot on his readings of and about Napoleon. But then the second point there is also he was very instrumental, it seems, about how he thought about the Western allies. On the one hand, he needed them. He wanted them. He certainly thought Poland was closer and should be closer to them than to the Central European German language states. But at the end of the day, he had his own ideas about what it would mean to have an independent Ukraine and an independent Lithuania, and he wanted them on his own terms. Is that fair? Yeah, that's absolutely fair. Um, We should say, for example, and then I'll go back, uh, if I may, to the importance of his admiration for Napoleon. Like, what does that tell us about the man? And that is, we should recall that um, in 1918-1919, I have uh, a map that I created that I think is very important because it shows the territories that Poland administered when it emerged as a state and how it had basically five uh, fronts around them that they fought for to extend that territory. And one was the pro- the issue of Lithuania, which is that Vilnius changed hands. It, it actually, uh, in, uh, uh, in late 1918, early 1919, came under Bolshevik rule. Uh, and in April 1919, uh, under Pilsudski's uh, command, and we should know, we should remember that he personally commanded many of these battles, the battle against Bolshevik Russia in 1920, um, and and he personally commanded this uh, this capture of Vilna from you know from the Bolsheviks uh, um, first, and then from the Lithuanian uh, armed forces, uh, who claimed Vilnius as their capital, but he insisted. Uh, on a few things, but, you know, not just that Vilnius was Polish and he wanted it uh, to be part of his Jagiellonian, the reconstituted Jagiellonian um, state in which it would be a kind of a, a Poland-Lithuania uh, in which there could be a kind of like joint Congress, a joint parliament in Vilnius. It could be jointly ruled, uh, but, Vil, Vil, but Lithuania um, uh, opposed that. And he took Vilnius, but actually really against uh, against what the Western powers um, actually uh, um, uh, permitted or, or allowed, uh, even though they couldn't do anything about it. And eventually, by 1923, they came around and actually uh, recognized Vilnius as part of Poland. But we should remember that Lithuania regarded themselves in a state of war with Poland until 1938 over the question of Vilnius. They never recognized Polish sovereignty over Vilna. And and again, Pilsudski attempted in 1919 
through clandestine diplomacy, some kind of, of, of union of Poland and Lithuania on the Jagiellonian ideal, and, and, it, and it failed. Uh, so, so I think that's, you know, so, so in that sense, he, he took that territory uh, by force and made it part of, of Poland. And that created a lot of antagonism. Most Poles would probably say that that was his right at that time. Uh, if it, especially if we think that at the time, we, we believe that Vilnius was about 7% Lithuanian and 30% Polish. Uh, and so the idea that from an ethno-linguistic point of view, it was Lithuanian when there were a few, you know, so that's one of the arguments that comes up always these socioeconomic uh, um you know, profiles of cities, even if the villages around were, were ethnic Lithuanian. So I'd say that's 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 one of the issues that he took that land uh, that um, also certain territories, you know, uh, from well, not but but the conflict with Czechoslovakia and Chechen, and then the, there was some conflicts with with Germany uh, and of course with Bolshevik Russia and of course um, Lviv and uh, Ukraine. So we have all these conflicts that he settled militarily. Uh, the outcome later was not good for Poland. We can say whether or not you believe that was his the right of Poland, uh, the the enmity it sowed with Ukrainians, with Russians, with Lithuanians, with Czechs, uh, with Germans, uh, made it. We can say that the Second Polish Republic had borders that were hotly contested really virtually on every side. And, and I, I'm not sure that that made Poland more secure uh, by having those those conflicts. No, I, I think that's an incredibly important feature I mean, of the story. And it follows uh, really through the end of your book. I, um, I mean, there are, there are a couple of nationalities we haven't, I mean, I, I want to talk a little bit more about German speakers and the Western borders. But before we do that, I actually wanted to, to, to go back for a second to uh, Piłsudski's stance on uh, Jewish citizens of Poland and more generally, um, let's call it on on anti-Semitism. Uh, I was very struck. I mean, I think that the the way I, I really enjoyed the history of ideas, uh, sort of the step by step progression throughout the 1890s and the 19 aughts. How Piłsudski sort of came to understand uh, the importance of Yiddish language, political literature, and of interactions. And he became more nuanced. You, uh, it, for your book, really, I think, I mean, I, I the, the, hope the, the listeners will find that, that, that really he learned a lot. And we learn alongside him just how much more complex things got once the Bund was created, once he, he started seeing that there couldn't be just a one-dimensional approach to uh, the Jewish community of the former Polish-Lithuanian lands. But obviously lurking in the background is uh, Roman Domowski and national democracy. And they represented real constituencies. Uh, and that become, it became very clear in the uh, final months of World War One and the immediate aftermath, right? So on the one hand, Piłsudski has this legacy, and it's a genuine legacy. It's so amply documented in your book, as well as elsewhere, of being really going out of his way to put his foot down and say, this 
is a state for everyone, including Jews who should have equal rights, the way he consulted Jewish political parties early on in the formation of the state. And on the other, there were pogroms playing out uh, across a wide geographical swath uh, in which a lot of his soldiers were involved. And uh, it's not that he ignored them, but there seems to be, I mean, this has been a, a topic of a lot of publications in the last few years. What about the pogroms of 1918, 1919, and how that intersects with his war aims? So if I can just sort of simplify for a second and ask, you know, given what we know about the pogroms at the tail end of the war, what we know about the Yabłonna camp, what you write about in your book for Jewish soldiers of the Polish army during the Polish-Bolshevik War who were interned, and then the withdrawal from the Polish Minorities Treaty in the mid-1930s, it seems like a lot of the moves that Piłsudski made or maybe didn't make actually undercut or opened doors for the kind of anti-Semitic legislation and heavily ethno-national legislation we know that Domofsky and the far right were gunning for even before the creation of the state. Uh, hindsight's twenty twenty, I know, but I'm just curious mm, what you would say about the balance of his stance on inclusiveness, uh, outreach to Jews, and anti-Semitism. So that's a wonderful question uh, that has a lot of elements, let's say, uh, attached to it. Um, I would start by just saying that in my first chapter, I discuss Pilsudski's ancestry. Um, I discuss his upbringing and um, his character based on um, memoirs uh, by people who who knew him as a child, as a teenager. Um, And uh, and I tried to kind of construct the, the the kind of like beginnings of this uh, political um, idea that he had. So one thing we can say is that he seems to, at a very young age, been very suspicious about um, stereotypes of groups. And at the end of his life, he was interviewed, and I use this a lot, that it, um, in 1931, uh, one of his main um, comrades uh, sat down with him on four occasions in long interviews, he was 63 years old at the time. He passes away three and a half years later and has him reflect back. And, um, and he, he makes these statements that, that from a very young age, he abhorred stereotypes about groups. He didn't trust them. He said they were, they were by definition always half-truths or fourth-truths and always wrong. And they led, they led to misinformation uh, and, and prejudice. So that's one thing. He spoke about that. In relation to ethnic groups and also about religion, for example, he um, so so that's one thing that I think is important that he was a nonconformist by by let's say by nature he would he was not vulnerable to the crowd so if there was there was a consensus uh, about an ethnic group he didn't in any way accept that he was at he was at the very beginning suspicious of it as as not fully true or not true at all. Uh, and so he believed uh, in, a, in a kind of very important deep Western um, tradition that comes out in, in people like Henry David Thoreau and Martin Luther King Jr. Um, that you should judge people not um, by the color of their skin or their religion, but by the content of their character. And I think this is important because he had many um, 
Jewish friends uh, in his uh, from his teenage years up through his um, uh, uh, you know twenties and thirties as leader of the Polish Socialist Party, and he didn't regard them as Jews. They were they were individuals, and I think that this was a very important part of his character. He believed that Jews, you know, Lithuanians, Ukrainians were part of the heritage and legacy of of the Polish uh, of Polish history and the Commonwealth. Uh, they were not outsiders. They were not foreigners. So I think that that's very important. And his opposition to anti-Semitism was something that he expressed uh, early on as a member, as the leader of the Polish Socialist Party. So, for example, in one of the chapters, um, I quote him from, I believe it's from 1905 or 1902, uh, in which he's, and I'm, I'm looking for it right now, but it's, it's the uh, epigram of one. Uh, but he basically says that um, that anti-Semitism, uh, this is a, a lead editorial from now I remember 1902 in Robotnik, which is the central organ of the Polish Socialist Party. And he says anti-Semitism uh, is something that uh, uh, will not be tolerated in any way, shape or form in the party and that we will, uh, you know, we will ostracize and condemn anyone who tries to put it into any program or makes it part of the party. So that's something that just came out that he was uh, of the belief that anti-Semitism as an as a idea or a movement was in and of itself a threat to uh, the democratic ideal so that it was a kind of cover for something else. It wasn't really about the Jews. It was about how you're going to construct the future of Poland. Will it be uh, a democratic state uh, with civil rights uh, and equality before the law, or will it be one uh, favoring a, a privileged uh, majority or one ethnic group? And he believed that the, you know, that that, that movement, uh, and, and he observed this, uh, looking at, to Central Europe in the 1880s and 1890s when anti-Semitism became a political movement, a movement to uh, limit the legal uh, uh, to limit the legal rights of Jews uh, in various states like Germany and Austria-Hungary was really an attack on democracy. Because if you have a constitutional state that guarantees equality before the law, and you want to start tampering with that constitution, that say, well, well, when it comes to this group, we're going to actually uh, change that constitution. We're not going to make it universal, but particular. So I would say that that's very important. Now, when it comes to, uh, so clearly we can say that he he worked with Jews in the party. For example, two major figures were Felix Pearl and Stanislav Mendelssohn in the Polish Socialist Party. They helped draft the founding program. Uh, Mendelssohn, we know uh, that founding program was drafted in Paris in, in 1892 as Stanislav Mendelssohn uh, was tasked with establishing an organization in Tsarist Russia. And one of the first persons he met was Pilsudski in, in Vilnius. And Pilsudski would take up the mantle of leading that Lithuanian section of the party. But, but he would become very uh, close friends with Mendelssohn and then Felix Pearl in, in, in Warsaw. Now, you, you asked about then um, the subject of Jews as we're going into World War I and, and the state. What we can say is that in World War I, he forms the Polish legions and that Jews, we think, made up about 10 percent 
of the soldiers of the of the legions, which is about roughly the percentage of Jews in in Polish society uh, at the time. So that was important. Um, um, it, we're talking now about Austrian Galicia uh, that there were Jews who uh, um, who s- stood behind Pilsudski and were willing uh, to put their lives on the line for for Poland. And we have several cases, and I have some images in the book of a couple Jewish officers in the Polish legions who perished in battle against uh, the, the, the Russians. Um, so one is Bronislaw Mons, Mans Pearl, for example, uh, and Pilsudski praised them during World War One uh, in obituaries. Uh, and but the very fact that there were um, a good amount of Jews who wanted to take up arms uh, in the Polish legions had, in large part, to do with Pilsudski and the First Brigade, which which was promoting the ideal of a democratic pluralistic Poland. Now, when we get into Polish independence in that first few years, um, I do have an entire section about the outbreak of pogroms and anti-Jewish violence, which was a problem with uh, the outbreak of border wars between Poland, Bolshevik Russia, Poland, Ukraine, Poland, Lithuania. uh, And we do have in Austrian Galicia and in the other areas outbreaks of anti-Jewish violence. Now, they're much more severe in Ukraine. Uh, What I do is try to give the latest research about numbers. But I think when we get back to Pilsudski, I think uh, what I bring out is that in the first month of the state of Poland, that's to say within by the end of November 1918, so that's to say the first 19 days of the independent Poland, Pilsudski meets on two occasions with leaders of the Jewish community of Poland, specifically on the subject of pogroms. So first of all, I think it's important to note that it was unheard of before the end of World War I that the Regency Council, which which, uh, administered the Polish regions, would have met separately with Jews on issues like this. So the very, uh, uh, so the very, just uh, the, even the, these optics of Piłsudski greeting um, leaders of the Jewish community uh, uh, at Belvedere um, Palace in Warsaw, uh, getting a, uh, having an audience with the head of state. He would spend hours listening to their concerns. They would they provided um, uh, actual written. Um, uh, they were they were like um, reports of outbreaks of pogroms, and they were pleading with Piłsudski to do something. And after these two occasions of meetings, um, the main request was that Pilsudski give a formal address condemning the pogroms. He wouldn't do that. This I'm, I was looking into, I, and I couldn't completely understand the reasoning. His, his response, and how do we know this, I should just say for readers, is that there were written transcripts of the uh, exchange between that appeared actually in newspapers in real time in in the Yiddish press, but also in the Polish press. Mostly there was a Polish, a couple of Polish language Jewish papers. So actually not only right after, there'd be a report the next day or the day after, which showed you that uh, that there were uh, must have been other people in the room, perhaps even, it shows you the transparency of the new regime who were allowed to sit in and, and report on this. Uh, in which they said, in which 
his response was, I'm not authorized to give an address to the, to the, uh, to the state um, condemning the pogroms. The only people who, the, the body that's authorized will be the, uh, will be the elected uh, parliament uh, in February of 1919. So if you think of the timeline, this is the end of November, 1918. Pogroms, there is an outbreak of pogroms that's going on along the area where the border wars, but not only. Uh, and he's saying that he's not authorized to give this condemnation when the people elect a parliament in January, and then it and then it convenes. That parliament will issue a statement, and they're authorized because he his his argument is that he was appointed head of state by the Regency Council. Uh, he's not elected yet. He doesn't. So uh, and. And the consensus is that that really was bowing out of his responsibility. He could have made a general statement. Now, in that, he assured them that privately he's sending communications to every uh, head of, of armed forces on the fronts, condemning the pogroms and telling them you have to prevent them in any way possible. And the people who perpetrate them have, have to be brought to justice. This is what he's saying he's sending them, but that he's saying he won't publicly condemn and I think that, that there was um, uh, uh, a lot of resentment uh, among Polish Jews that he wouldn't come out just to condemn what needed to be uh, needed to be condemned. I would only say that there was uh, uh, in in Pilsudski's collective writing. So one of the main sources is is that in 1937, 1938, uh, and I think this goes to the uh, legacy of Pilsudski. He passes away in May 1935, and an institute is formed in his name uh, at, that then starts collecting his writings and in 1937-38 publishes their most important accomplishment, this Institute for the Study of, of Joseph Pilsudski, um, was to publish his 10-volume collected writings and still today the main source. In, in 1992, um, his main biographer, Andrzej Garlitsky, will put out a two-volume uh, uh, addition to that, uh, which is everything that didn't appear in those. And then, so we now have a 12 volume collected writings of Pilsudski. I mentioned that because in there, there's an interview with Pilsudski um, in which, uh, and I'm sorry, this is a little bit later and it relates to something you mentioned um, in Yeb Buonerna, because if the progress, there was an outbreak of in 1918, um, uh, in 1919, and, and again, they were almost always connected with the the uh, the uh, taking of land from either Lithuanians or Russians or Ukrainians. So, if in November 1918 Poland conquers Lviv, a pogrom breaks out. Still to this day, controversial. What what happened? You know exactly. You know kind of what happened there. And then when they when they take uh, um, you know for example Pinsk from the, the Bolsheviks uh, in, uh, I believe, April 1919, also a program. So in all these, there's discussions. Um, and, and in 1920, he's interviewed uh, in one of the major daily papers. And there, I think I quote that in, at length because I think it summarizes Pilsudski's kind of understanding of this conflict, which is, which is that there is no one Jewish community. It's a it's the largest 
Jewish community in all of Europe, the second largest in the world. There's more Jews in Warsaw than all of France, you know. Uh, and so Jews behave differently. And he says this, and I think it's important to have this real-time reporting, which is this is right in the thicket um, of when there's a huge controversy um, um, in the 1920 Polish-Soviet War. So he starts by saying Jews behaved admirably, admirably, uh, he says, patriotically and bravely in this battle, in this battle. He's talking about how they bravely fought the Bolsheviks in this city that these Jews, and he actually knows them by name. It's incredible, you know, uh, perished. Um, but then he says, on the other hand, we have some cases in which our reporting is that Jews went to the other side. They were, I guess, Jews who had communist proclivities. And as as the front arrived in that town, they laid down, this is what the claim was, laid down their arms and joined the other side. Uh, so there's there's plenty of reports saying, you know, contradictory things, but it shows that he did believe that some Polish Jews acted treasonously and therefore uh, it, it's hard to know where he really stood on the, the pogrom. And I should put that in quotes because I'm not sure everybody agrees on what that term actually means. Um, some would call it a riot, some would call it you know, justifiable, um, but in, in, in the right-wing Polish press at the time, um, it's clear that the, the central fear is that Jews were pro-Bolshevik and their main enemy were the Bolsheviks, right? So they kept saying that we, we you know, in this, te- in, the, in the right-wing Polish press, which I cite, they're saying, well, in this town where three Jews were killed, they weren't Jews, they were Bolsheviks. But, and, and when you study those cases, almost always, there's literally no relation. It was just completely a stereotype. We have the case of Pinsk in which the local commander said that every Jew is a Bolshevik, so we're going to search for Bolsheviks, meaning Jews. So the, so the Judeo-Bolshevik. So, and I think that Pilsudski, uh, his, his, he has a mixed record there, uh, uh, but I but I do want to say that when when the borders were settled by 1921, and I think this is very important to note, between the settling of the borders, which is the Treaty of Riga of March 1921, uh, where the internationally recognized frontiers between Bolshevik Russia and Poland, and Pilsudski's death, uh, we really we don't have cases of outright. Uh, outbreaks or pogroms in Poland, meaning when it was the Poland of what I call the Poland of Pilsudski, where he was in power, there were peaceful, there were settled borders. It was clear that while he was in power, anti-Jewish excesses were not going to be tolerated. There's just this understanding that's not going to happen under, and so I think that is, it means something and it should be kind of noted. Uh, In warfare, when there's battles going on and and cities are going back and forth and the local population their their um uh their you know their loyalty is in question are they for the the enemy are they for the you know the poles are they for the lithuanians um then then there were excesses for sure well the your point about uh the let's say the, the lack of, well, the, the general approach that Piłsudski took between 1921 and his death in 1935, it strikes me, and this is definitely the impression I get from your book as well, that to the extent 
that Piłsudski showed anti-democratic commitments. And of course, this is one of the defining features of the interwar conversation. Namely, how do you get someone who wanted so desperately to build a democratic Poland, who then launches a coup against democratic Poland, who then uh, imprisons uh, rightfully elected deputies of the democratically elected same, etc., etc. In each case, he tied, as I read it, he tied uh, his anti-democratic moves to the need to tamp down prevent uh, anti-Semitic excesses, but more generally, these kinds of dramatic exclusionary, um, well, outbreaks, not just of mass violence, but attempts to enshrine that kind of violence in legislation. And obviously, there's the Narutovich assassination, which is absolutely central in your story in 1922, uh, the takeover in 1926, and then Brzezcz, uh, right in 1930. And here I wanted to ask a specific question because it's I think it's an impossible question, but if you don't mind, I'm going to put you on the spot anyway. Uh, for a second, uh, I'm going to put on my own sort of scholarly hat as a, a scholar of the Catholic Church and Catholic politics. You know, I, it, I've always been struck by how good Piłsudski's relationship was with the Holy See. And of course, the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church throughout most of the interwar had been nuncio in uh, Poland, had been a firsthand eyewitness to the Battle of Warsaw, and he always appreciated Piłsudski afterwards, and how bad Piłsudski's relationships were at the same time with the prelates who were actually on Polish soil. and those prelates mostly were in favor of the anti-Semitic right-wing parties. But that being said, there was one passage uh, which really struck me. When you talk about the arrests of the uh, opposition leaders that who were then imprisoned in the Brzezcz prison and how violently and with complete disregard for any semblance of due process that was done, one of them was the future long-term leader of Christian democracy in exile, who would be of the face of, of Polish Catholic politics in the international arena. His predecessor was Korfante, Wojciech Korfante, who obviously had a very specific story of his own. I don't know if you want to get into it, but I'm talking about Karol Popiel. You describe, you quote an eyewitness, one of the gendarmes grabbed him by the head and the other by his legs. He was then knocked down on a stool. A wet cloth was thrown on the crosses and about 30 blows were meted out with an iron tool. Popiel fainted. After the beating, the captain overseeing the arrest reportedly said, enjoy how little was done. Next time, Marshal Piłsudski will order a bullet to your head. So this is 1930. It's five years before Piłsudski's death. And this is, I would, I see it also as being in the context of this kind of impossibly uh, irreconcilable, uh, you know, between (laughs) a rock and a hard place position where Piłsudski sees democratic politics as being guided in large part by Catholic anti-Semitism and is therefore willing to go anti-democratic. But I read that and I think, how do we call this guy a Democrat? Right. So that's a great point. And I would just like to, and maybe ask you, what do you think the impact of this is, is that that as a Roman Catholic, he converted um, to Protestantism in order to marry in 1899, uh, uh, um, a woman who was divorced and a single mother. Um, and then he reconverted in, in 1916 
Um, and so I'm wondering, I don't know the impact necessarily of that in terms of his relations with the, the Catholic Church, but it, it did seem to me that he was not a religious person himself. Yeah, his his relationship with uh, with the, the the faith, let's call it, was always pretty uh, loose. I don't want to say it was opportunistic because I I don't know that we have enough evidence to understand something like what piety might have meant to Piłsudski. But there were dramatic differences. For sure, he was not loyal to the Polish Catholic hierarchy. I think he had, like I said, a very good relationship with the Vatican. He concluded the Concordat in the 1920s, not personally, but it was concluded in the 1920s. But when it came to how he understood the Catholicism's impact on what was most important to him, civic equality and full equality and rights for everyone in Poland, it was deleterious to the extent where I would argue Popiel was so much less uh, of a of a of a of a of an of a should have been from that standpoint so much less of a target than say Domowski, and yet you have this kind of collateral damage which is justified. I mean that idea. Next time, Marshall Piłsudski will pull, have us pull a bullet in yeah. your head. Yeah, that was that's a striking, you know, quote that I found from the primary documents. In some ways, I want to I kind of go back to this, in a way, a central question, which was who was Piłsudski? Was he a Democrat? Was he? Uh, uh, um, a dictator, an author- authoritarian leader, and um, and I wanted to caution against comparing him to the major interwar European dictators. And just to say that if we look at, um, for example, if we look at uh, Benito Mussolini of Italy, and we look at Stalin of Russia, and we look uh, at Hitler um, of Germany, these were people who entered into um, democratic systems. Um, uh, Mussolini in Italy, uh, Hitler in Germany. Now, and and um, and in terms of let's say Stalin and the Bolsheviks during the period of the, they take over from a democratic provisional government, and so they entered an already existing democratic parliamentary system and worked to overthrow it and replace it with one-party dictatorships. Now, Pilsudski, on the other hand, literally was the creator of the democratic system in Poland. So the idea that he worked to demolish what he had created, uh, there's a lot of tension between it. It doesn't make complete sense. And I think there's a way to kind of understand his his turn to authoritarianism after 1926 and up until uh, 1935. But I I do want to say that that when when he took like we think of what did Mussolini do when he was named prime minister in 1922 where he worked he worked to demolish the democratic state and by 1925 fascism the fascist party is the only legal party in italy of hitler comes into a democratic germany and literally within six months the fascist party is the only legal party uh in germany pilsudski is given absolute power at the moment of the creation of a state and what does he choose to do and i think the timeline is important He's given absolute power uh, uh, on November 11th. Uh, sorry, on November 11th, he's named commander in chief. That's when World War One ends. On November 14th, the, uh, um, the 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 then authorities hand over power to Pilsudski as head of state. And then what he does is um, 
for example, that's the four, four days later, on the 18th, he names a provisional government. And by November 28th, he introduces with his uh, members of the cabinet, a new election law and announces elections for June, sorry, for January 26, 1919. And there was a lot of pressure on him because there was suspicion, what will he do to be totally transparent uh, and to announce a date for those elections? Um, and those elections do take place. They're free and fair. And when the first session of the freely elected assembly, Poland's first freely elected parliament, sits on February 20th, 1919, Piłsudski addresses the parliament and then resigns as head of state. In other words, he fulfilled his promise. He said, he said at this point, only a freely elected body can name a head of state. And what do they do is they unanimously name him as head of state. He leaves the room, but he did, he did fulfill his, his, and, and we should also um, say something about the progressive nature of the electoral law. It, it gave women the right to vote. Poland became the fourth country in the Western world to allow women the right to vote long before the United States, long before France, Britain, you know, so there's something really, and, and even on that note, when you read, uh, you know, a kind of women's history of Poland, they'll talk about what happened there. And that is, we find out that many people within his own former party, because he was no longer member of a party, he wanted to be a non-party leader. He didn't want to be associated with the political party. They were pressuring him to wait on the uh, uh, on the right of women to vote. Uh, because what their argument is that women in Poland are largely conservative, largely Catholic, and they'll vote for his opponents. And then he said, he can't, he, you have to include women in the right to vote because women fought in the Polish legions. They put their lives on the lines along with men to bring about Poland. You have to give them the right to vote. So he actually went against the advice of his closest comrades on that and pushed through uh, women's rights, uh, uh, and especially suffrage. So I think that's important that he did that. He went through, um, the, uh, he went through, he, he did, as we said, um, create a coalition government, uh, with the Paris, uh, Polish national committee naming Paderewski prime minister. Um, and, and then they formed this, um, freely elected parliament, which then was tasked with drafting the constitution. It's interesting how long it took this body to uh, draft the Constitution, but by March, you know, 1921, Poland had its uh, Constitution. It was to be the second Polish Republic, uh, and he presided over the, this this speedy transition to democracy. So I just want to, for listeners, to think of the contrast. Um, Hitler comes into power, and within six months, he changes democratic Germany into a fascist state. Mussolini does the same thing. Stalin and, well, it's really Lenin, Stalin, the Bolsheviks seize power in November 1917, um, uh, um, overthrowing the provisional government. And within, you know, uh, um, within a short amount of time, the Bolshevik party becomes the sole legal party, right? Pilsudski does the exact opposite. He comes into a state and builds the democratic state. So how do we understand from there getting to 1926, where he he leads a military uh, takeover of power. So I don't know if I should pause there and maybe speak about what I 
the reason I think that this happened. Um, uh, you know, go right ahead, because I think after this, we only have time for one more question. So if you oh, want okay. to finish the thought, please sure. do. So I, I just think this is uh, this is important um, is is to remember that what happened is I believe that his um, his uh, he, he lost faith, not in the democratic ideal. I believe he actually never lost faith in the in the democratic ideal. And I have several uh, I have supporting evidence for that. What I believe is he lost faith in the Polish people to forge ahead with a democratic system. And and this has to do with the assassination of the first president. So the first presidential elections took place in December 1922. And Gabriel Narutowicz was named president-elect. Uh, he got the most amount of votes. There was a standoff with his right-wing opponent. And as we know, there was a vicious press campaign in the five days that followed the elections claiming that the president-elect was an illegitimate president because he had been elected by minorities. The, the conservative or right-wing uh, put forth a policy of called the doctrine of the Polish majority. And they essentially said that if only ethnic Poles could have voted, then, then Narutowicz would not have won. How did he win? With the, the vote of Jews and other minorities. Therefore, he was illegitimate, and they actually moved towards removing him from power. It was almost like the, the you know, coming of a kind of coup d'etat. And five days later, this president, uh, you know, Poland's first democratically elected president is assassinated five days later by someone who's not a, doesn't, is not directly associated with the right-wing opponents of Pilsudski, um, but he was clearly influenced by this vicious press campaign. And we know that because in the trial, he says exactly that he that he was very influenced um, by this. And um, this particular person said that he, he believed uh, that Pilsudski was influenced uh, too much by the Jews and that he'd create a Judeo-Poland uh, and that as a patriot of Poland, he had to, uh, what he first thought was assassinate Pilsudski, but then he realized, well, in fact, he has to move towards that first president. But his first idea was Pilsudski. So he goes towards the president and um, he's put on trial. He's found guilty and he's, he's executed. But the trial record comes out and the right wing press began to praise this individual who was the murderer, the assassin, as a patriot. Um, and we also know, I bring out in this book, that there's police records showing that in certain areas, specifically of Western Poland, like Poznan, some people began to put pictures of the assassin uh, in their windows and calling him a martyr of the nation and praising him. And all these reports came back to Pilsudski, and I believe he concluded that Poland wasn't ready for a democratic state. For, for having fair and free elections and respecting the outcome, even if the, those are not your desired outcomes, but saying they were free and fair and we respect that and they would actually wage violence. And so when we get to the coup, I think um, he had basically said to himself, he would not let uh, the, those members of the right wing of the Polish political um, um, you know, spectrum uh, return to power who had, who had been behind the vicious press campaign, behind the campaign to delegitimize de Narutowicz. And in and what we know is that on you know May 10th, 
the government that was named uh, May 10th of 1926 after a political crisis uh, was was almost exclusively of of the parties that had put forth that press campaign. And, and I think Pilsudski feared that democracy uh, was about to crumble. And, and when you combine this with the fact that one month before the Soviet Union signed a military accord with, with Germany, um, uh, I think that, that just in, uh, basically uh, uh, you know, worsened the situation of security. So we believe that Poland was, was in, de- in decay and, and, uh, and once again, it was vulnerable towards invasion from its neighbors and he had to kind of take power. So that, uh, so so that's where he came down. That he believed he was saving. So unfortunately, we only have time for one more question. But I think the the, the words you just uttered are the perfect uh, uh, way to set up what I was going to ask uh, by way of closing. Which is, I mean, obviously there are a lot of different legacies that can be extracted from Piłsudski's story. And you, you do quite a bit of this in the final sections of the book. I wanted to pin down two. Uh, the first has to do with how you just characterized Piłsudski's loss of faith in the Polish people. And and I think it's really important, the distinction you drew between Piłsudski on the one hand and, say, uh, Hitler or Mussolini on the other. But I think about 1989 and the construction of a new Polish Republic out of the ashes of the communist system in Central and Eastern Europe. Many of the founding fathers, I mean, certainly the the center, center left founding fathers, uh, and I'm thinking, you know, Mazowiecki writing a few months before his death in 2013, looking 25, 30 years down the road would say, and this is not just Poland, we really empowered populism, we really empowered a far right, and obviously they fought alongside us in the 1980s, but then we built the system together, and when they're in power, they don't want to respect the rules. So arguably, there's a longitudinal uh, story here about uh, the the nature of what it means to allow for you sort of you you let the 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 ball roll if you will uh, once once you once you start the the process uh, and you respect whatever the outcome of democratic norms up to a point and Piłsudski decided where that point was and he started shutting things down. And the 21st century has seen a lot of similar conversations, uh, not to the same extent, but this comes up with Orban. It's come up with the uh, law and justice in Poland. I'm not asking you necessarily to weigh in on current political debates, but more just to say if you feel like there are things that we should avoid or lessons that we can learn directly from that that particular dilemma and the way Piłsudski faced it when we look at our own time. And then the second one, it's connected but it, it, it brings out even more one of the first things you said in this conversation about the lessons of Piłsudski's campaigns and advocacy for an independent Ukraine at the end of World War One. And I just wonder what you feel. I mean, obviously it's June, right? So it's been a few months since Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, but the war has, seems to have no end in sight. Where do you feel like you have anything you want to say based on the experience of Piłsudski about Ukraine? And then I'm going to wrap at that. Thank you okay. so much. No, thank you. So it is interesting to kind of consider the the current um, populist government in Poland and its 
happening in many places of uh, in Eastern Europe. And to think of Pilsudski's legacy, because for the first time in post-communist Poland, for the most part, at least in the last decade and a half, you know, both, let's say, the, the liberal parties and the populist parties do draw on Pilsudski, right? They're not, but that, that wasn't always the case. We know that in the 1970s and 80s, um, the followers of Roman Domowski abroad, uh, um, Polish Americans abroad, like, um, for example, Jędrzej Giertyk, wrote several biographies um, of Pilsudski, referring, saying he was neither a Pole nor a Catholic. Uh, he was an enemy of the Polish state, uh, and that his advocacy for minority rights was really a, a kind of treason, I guess. Um, and so they, they, they put forth themselves as kind of enemies of, they were continuing this debate um, of whether Poland should be uh, an ethnic state or a multinational state, uh, and they opposed and they oppose Pilsudski. But now we can say the populace, um, they, they will embrace him as this kind of founding father. Remember, there's statues of Pilsudski all over Poland in the center of, of of Warsaw is Pilsudski Square with the Pilsudski statue and in front of uh, Belvedere uh, and all over uh, Poland. So what the populace today is they'll embrace Pilsudski without mentioning his legacy of, of advocacy for minority rights. Um, that, that, uh, that, that advocacy is shows strength in a democratic state. So I think that that's an interesting aspect that Pilsudski's kind of adopted by both the right uh, and the left uh, in Poland. Now, in terms of Ukraine, I think, you know, I think of him a lot, and I believe the where I think he would have been appalled by by the but kind of undertoes of appeasement during this crisis in Ukraine, which is his belief is that Russia understood one thing and one thing only, force. And so, the very beginning of this conflict, the head of the free world. Uh, President Joe Biden, you know, seven days, uh, I'm sorry, 10 days before the invasion of, of Ukraine, got up in front of the world, said Russia's amassed 180,000 troops on the border. They will invade. And he was asked, will you intervene militarily to stop them? And he said, without any pause, no, we will not. But we will exact massive sanctions. So that was in some ways you know, from Pilsudski's point of view, that would be considered a green light to go in. Sanctions aren't going to stop uh, Putin from going in or Russia from going in. And in his time, he was advocating the independence of Ukraine and the Western democracies tried to halt him saying, what are you doing? You're going to provoke Russia. And then he says, you, and he said the independence of Ukraine will ensure security in Europe. You can't have secure... A security in Europe without the independence of Ukraine, because Russia will be encroaching constantly on our border. But and then the other thing is, remember, he believed that that um, uh, that Poland had a mission, and I, I found this fascinating. That he, it's a quote from the top of one of my chapters, in which he says that he believes that Poland's mission is the same corresponds with France's mission in Western Europe, and that is the carriers and extenders of democracy uh, um, up to, you know, uh, into the east of Europe, that, that he says this would be the his greatest contribution as a statesman and a military leader would be to bring freedom to neighboring peoples. And at the same 
uh, statement, he said, I do not want to conquer. I'm not there to conquer these peoples. I want to enable them uh, to have a free existence. And if he could accomplish that, that, that would be his greatest achievement as a statesman. And I thought that was in, he said that in 1921. Um, um, and I believe that that reflects a lot of, of his understanding for the, for, for the organization of European states and why I believed Ukrainian independence was, was central. But I think his caution would be when you had appeasers all over saying, uh, we don't want to humiliate Russia. We don't want, you know, uh, you know, maybe we should give concessions on land, these things. And I believe, I believe he would say that any concessions on land will only embolden Russia to, to strike at other uh, territories. So I think that's the legacy for, for him, which is, which is basically, uh, I would say, uh, which is strengthening frontiers, fortifying them, uh, basically with force. Uh, there's no doubt that he would have been thrilled at the presence of NATO forces in Poland to fortify those frontiers. Uh, that is, uh, I think, a really important lesson. I hope you're writing. <laughs> It'll be good to see uh, more public commentary from you on this point because Piłsudski is incredibly relevant. And uh, yeah, no, I, I, I hope our our listeners uh, reflect on what you just said, but also, you know, to our listeners, I want to commend again uh, Josh Zimmerman's really field-changing and incredibly readable and I think teachable uh, new biography of Józef Piłsudski, which came out this month with Harvard University Press. Uh, Josh, thank you so much for the conversation. This has been a great pleasure. Uh, thank you so much. I had a really great time as well. I appreciate it. Thank you to everyone for listening.